There we go. Now, um, it's probably sad news to some of you, but I'm actually started watching Band of Brothers again. Um, if, if, if some of you have seen it, I'm sure. It is arguably probably the greatest television series that has ever been made and produced alongside West Wing. But we can debate that one over a coffee later. Now, Band of Brothers plots the heroic battles of the 101st Airborne Division of the US Army um, during World War II. They're incredibly brave men. The focus of the first two episodes, though, is on the training of the men, both in America and also on our shores here, before D-Day. And the first two episodes specifically then focus on the commanding officer uh, of that uh, little group of people, the commanding officer of Easy Company, the Band of Brothers. And their first commanding officer is a brilliant man, a diligent man, but slightly ruthless in many ways. He trains the men, and they are ready for fighting. Uh, they are brilliantly kind of honed it physically and so on. But there's one major issue, and that is every time that they go into an exercise uh, of a military engagements, he tactically shows himself to be completely inept, and again and again and again gets trapped or caught by the pretend enemies. This is all training whilst over on these shores. So before they're dropped over enemy lines, the troops gather as part of Easy Company and say, we can't be led by this man. We're, we're bound to die very quickly. He will lead us towards the enemy. We are not safe in his hands. And they know that to, if you like, undermine their officer uh, is a court-martialing offence. They fear so much for their lives that they go to, if you like, the senior officer of the garrison and say, you must change our commanding officer. The point is that they need to know that they are safe in their commanding officer's hands. And the question I want to begin with today for us is, who do you serve and, and who do you trust with your life and even your death? The point is, we need to be in good hands. And Judges 9, if you like, is about leadership that has been placed in the wrong hands as I think it was pretty apparent as we went through that chapter. We've been looking at Judges for a few weeks, and let me, if, if you're, especially if you're here today for the first time, let me very quickly go through some of the stuff that we've been learning so far. So a bit of kind of background. It's a historical narrative, a story of over 3,000 or 3,200 years ago. It did happen. Historians do not debate that fact at all. There's so much evidence. God's people have moved into the promised land, Canaan, but they become a very compromised people. The leaders of God's people are gone. So Moses had gone, he died. Joshua, he died. And the question was, and remains here, who are the people now going to follow? Are they going to listen and obey God, worshipping him in their earthly home that he had given them, the, the promised land? Would they respond to that gift of grace, that that same undeserved kindness that, that Christians know, uh, in, securing, uh, in the securing of our eternal home through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, would they respond to that gift of grace as many, as, uh, many of us have? But sadly, they don't respond well. Uh, we see in the book of Judges, uh, what is it? It's a very depressing uh, and repeated turning away from God. In that sense, I guess the book is like a metaphor of many of our lives. There's a repeated frame, refrain that goes through. You see it chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. It's the same line. It happens again and again. It simply says, 
Once again, the people, God's people, did evil, not necessarily in their eyes, but in the eyes of the Lord. That is, they sinned. If you just go through, there's this little cycle that goes through the book of Judges. There's a sin first. And as a result, as we see in the summary verses in chapter 2, verse 15 onwards, God either frustrates them in battle or he sends, as we see there, a raider in, an opposing army. And that begins, the first one is Christian Rishathaim, and then Moabites come in, then the Canaanites come in, and then the Midianites come in. God's people, each time they cry out in distress... They cry out. It's in regret rather than repentance. And we must be clear about that. But then what does God do? Well, he, in his undeserved kindness, in his grace, he provides a leader, a judge deliverer to save the people from these raiders. And we've seen in chapter 3, Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar. We saw in chapter 4, we saw Deborah with the assistance of Barak, chapter 4 and 5. And in chapter 6 to 8, as we saw last week, we saw Gideon. And each judge brings peace, or shalom. At first, the peace is lasting. The people remember God, they they choose to worship God, and they obey God. But this depressing downward spiral occurs throughout the book. And each time, the the peace is more and more short-lived. And by the time we get to Gideon, as we looked at last week... Yes, he worships God, declaring that the Lord, that is Yahweh, because it's in capitals, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that's his covenant loving name, he, he says, like, Yahweh's peace, he's shalom. So God, Gideon recognises who he is and who provides the peace. And that peace lasts for 40 years. We see that in chapter 8, verse 28. But as we, see, as we saw last week, that peace was utterly compromised. Gideon fails to honour God as he's more set on honouring himself. He may say that God rules, that God is the Lord, God is the one that brings peace. And yet he wants to take all the praise for himself. He wants all the power, all the glory. How did we see that? Well, we saw it was extraordinary, wasn't it? He made for himself an ephod. We think that's kind of a priestly robe. And eventually the people ended up worshipping that rather than God himself. He then took many wives for himself, again, dishonouring God through his word. And then lastly, to crown it all off, if you like, he calls his son, son of a concubine, concubine, Abimelech, which means my father is king. Gideon has led the people down a very slippery slope of compromise, and the result is seen in these last few verses of chapter 8. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites began again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baalbereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on, on every side. And you get to the end of chapter 8 and you think you've hit the absolute lowest. Even then, in verse 35, the people turn on each other. Could it get any worse? Well, perhaps even verse 35, at the end of chapter 8, is a glimmer of what what is to come in chapter 9. Let me summarise, if I can, where, where we've got to. God has been good to his people again and again and again and again. But God's people have again and again and again rejected him as Lord. 
And so Judges is a book of intervention, of God intervening into history and with his people, in his mercy and kindness, providing a judge, a deliverer, again and again, to lead his people, to save his people, and to lead his people back to him. But the question arises as you get to the beginning of chapter 9, what happens if there's no leader to lead God's people? If no leader appears or wants to lead... What happens if God is not wanted as king or as leader? As we see at the end of chapter 8, they're, they're prostituting themselves with the Baals and so on. It's perhaps what we recognise in our own hearts at times. And certainly in the hearts of many of people around us. Many will say, oh, you know, I see God of the Bible. There's no way I'm going to listen to him. There's no way that he's going to lead my life. And then you may look around at the people around you in your office or in where you live and you say, there's no way I'm going to listen to any of them directing my lives. I'm in control of my life. I'm king of my life. It's essentially what many of us say. And essentially what we do is we say, these are the hands I'm going to trust with my life and my death. And therefore what happens? Well, what happens is many just seize leadership for themselves. And that is what happens here in chapter 9 with Abimelech. He seizes this opportunity in leadership. Uh, his father Gideon had asked to be king back in chapter 8, verse 22. Rightly, he'd said no. No, the Lord is king, he said there. But then he acted as king, and time has passed. And his son now, Abimelech, is essentially filling the apparent void of leadership in the land. Abimelech, like the people around him, they thought that by removing God from their lives... This was the path, this was the way that we're going to live. This is the best way we can live. This is the way that most happiness is going to come to our lives. And we see that. Interestingly, in the whole of chapter 9, there is no mention of Yahweh, the Lord, at all. It is just utterly removed from the narrative of Abimelech. Many think like that, don't they? Like Abimelech. If we're honest, I guess, even if we're Christians here today, we struggle to remember and believe that living God's way, including the Lord in our lives, in decision-making, in every part of our lives, is the best way. We forget that sometimes, don't we? Especially when motorbikes are driving past. But Abimelech clearly believed that to rule God out of his life was the way for him and the way for God's people. And Gideon thought likewise, as we've seen, he slept with the concubine. And uh, I guess he thought, hey, I've got away with that. No one's spotted it. We're all right now. Yeah, we've done it. I've got a son, but we kind of keep that quiet. Everything's okay. But now Abimelech is here. And the people are literally going to reap what Gideon sowed. Abimelech is raised in Shechem. I've got a little map up there, I think. It's essentially right in the centre of the promised land of Canaan. Shechem is famous in the Bible because it's the place where God appeared to Abraham to promise him the land in Genesis 12. It's where Moses went with the people of God to rededicate themselves to God. There they set up a large stone to show that they were dedicated to God. There's a big stone there. Remember the stone. The stone's quite important. It goes throughout the whole chapter. You'll get the idea. Stone, think about that. The thing about Shechem, though, its problem, if you like, was it was a very Canaanite city. And Abimelech was therefore very Canaanite himself. We'll come to what that looks like in a moment. So let's look at his rise to leadership first. It's our first point, and uh, let's have a look at that, the rise of Abimelech. 
Let's turn to the narrative if we can. Have a look there at first one. You'll see the story begins. Abimelech goes to his uncles and convinces them that he would be the best person to be king. He argues in verse uh, 2 that the 70 sons of Gideon, if they were to rule over uh, the, the people, uh, that would be a bit confusing. You don't want 70, you just want one. That's a much simpler solution, isn't it? We can understand the pragmatism of that. And there you go. He argues as well, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm a Shechemite. I'm a blood kind of, I'm with you. Choose me. They do. Verse 4, they give him loads of money from the pagan temple. And he hires, as a lovely little phrase in our translations, some reckless adventurers. That's not like Captain Cook having a, like, a bit of fun there. It, I think it's more bandits, if I'm honest. With them, verse 5, he went uh, to his father's home and on one stone, one stone, he murdered his 70 brothers. Do note the irony uh, in Shechem that Moses and Joshua set up this stone to mark the unity of God's people under God. Abimelech, well, he'd used the stone to mark, if you like, his own independence and rebellion against God through the killing of these 70 sons. Verse 6, have a look at that quickly. We see a coronation or of sorts there. And, um, and we're left thinking, who is going to stop this despotic king? This power-crazed man. But then verse 7. It's a lovely thing, isn't it? Jotham appears. One of the 70 sons of Gideon who escaped. He doesn't march through the town, of course, because Abimelech's got his bandits. He's got his men there. Of course, he could be taken down if he does that. So what does he do? He climbs up a mountain. It's an important mountain, Mount Gerizim. Of course, that's the place where God, if you like, announces his blessings, as they're recalled in Deuteronomy. Uh, and Joshua, he, he doesn't come out to fight with physical weapons, does he? What does he come out with? comes out with the truth. It's much, much more powerful. And what does Jotham say? Well, actually, it's it's a bit like a children's fable, really. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears with a bit harder punch, I think. Some liken it to a political cartoon. I think I've got one up here uh, from this week. Essentially, it says some very hard things with very few words with a little bit of humour thrown in as well. Let's take that off. And so here we have Jotham with a little story about trees spoken from a mount of blessing. The fable is about leadership. It isn't saying uh, all leadership is wrong and anything like that or worthless. More it's a warning to people about the foolishness and the danger of accepting unqualified leadership. So there are three trees. We see that, the three good trees. There they are. They ask, would they like to be king of the trees? The olive, said, the olive tree says no. The fig tree, no. The vine, no. But the thorn bush says yes. And there's a whole bunch of foolish stuff going on here. Have a look down at verse 14 and 15 particularly. And let me point out a couple of things which to show you how silly this is. Firstly, they ask the thorn bush to be their king. Foolish. Secondly, verse 15, it's foolish because someone completely unsuitable accepts the offer and becomes king. In verse 15, you see the thornbush offers to provide shade for the others. Do you see how silly that is? Think about a vine tree, think about the other two trees. You've got a thornbush offering shade to much bigger trees. 
It's the smallest of all of them. It's this prickly little thing, the kind of knee height, maybe a bit waist height. It has no canopy of leaves. It can provide no shade. And then in the end of verse 15, it says, here comes the fear factor, if you like. If you don't pick me, however unsuitable I may be for the task, I'm going to do what I naturally do as a thorn bush. I'm going to burn you. That's what they did. They're very dry. They very easily caught fire and, and kind of got everything else aflame beside them. And if we're in any doubt what this little fable is kind of talking about, well, Jotham's very kind, isn't he? He kind of spells it out for us in verse 16 to 20. Follows through there. Jotham says, verse 16, if you've acted honorably and with good faith when you made Abimelech king, and then he says, if you've been fair with Jeroboam, that's Gideon and his family, and you treat him as he deserves. Verse 19, he goes, if you then acted honorably and good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today, May Abimelech be your joy. And may you be his. That is, he says, may your leadership, may kind of his leadership over you be good and pleasing. May this be a great thing for you guys, the nation, and also the leader, if you've acted honorably, if you've uh, been fair, if you treated people as they deserve. But in a sense, here's the punchy bit. Have a look at verse 20 to finish. But if you've not, let fire come out of Abimelech and consume them. And let, and let fire come out of you, uh, citizens of Shechem, and consume Abimelech. So Jotham stands on Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, and blesses the people with this warning. He's saying, if this is honourable, I hope it goes well for you. But he has to say, if, if it hasn't been honourable, then fire will come upon you. Now, kingship is a part of God's plan in the Bible. But there are kings in the Bible who recognise that God is the ultimate king. And there are kings in the Bible uh, who do not recognise that God is the ultimate king. And one of them is Abimelech. And we have a terrible example of that here. So this is not a story that is saying, you know, having a king, is, 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 there's something completely wrong about that. No, more it's a warning, as I said before, of us not to be, caref- uh, not to be careless when choosing a leader or a king. Of course, thornbush leaders, as you might describe them, they may have all sorts of qualities that we may like, that we may look towards. They may speak with great power, great eloquence. They can rule with lies and through fear as well. And we, have, do, we do have, as humanity, a, a strange kind of uh, tendency to accept such leaders, even to enjoy such leaders. One historian observed this in 1934 as he stood at the Nazi party celebration in Nuremberg. He wrote this in his memoirs. The words he uttered, the thoughts he expressed often seemed ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately and deepened and intensified it as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. In such a state, it seemed to me, they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. 
Over the years, as I listened to scores of Hitler's major speeches, I would pause in my own mind to exclaim, what utter rubbish, what brazen lies. And then I would look around at the audience. His German listeners were lapping up every word as utter truth. It comes from a memoirs of a man called William Shira in the nightmare years he described. If you ask a thornbush to be in charge, it will be a recipe for disaster. A thornbush leader does not have the qualifications nor the character to lead at all. And for the whole, if you like, for the church today, we see a whole host of Abimelechs in positions that they are neither qualified for or suitable for. I was very sadly chatting with my dad just a couple of weeks ago when he was staying with us and he was telling me about uh, a very well-known uh, friend of our families who's just been appointed to become a bishop in the Church of England. The sad thing is we know, and he states very publicly, that he doesn't believe some of the central tenets of the gospel. And he is dismissive of some of the parts of the Bible and its teaching. It is another case of bad choosing and inappropriate volunteering as he's pushed himself towards that position. And the sad truth is the church will get burnt. If we, get, if we get the Bible's teaching on leadership, if we forget those sobering passages of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, then institutions like the Church of England will end up absolutely burnt. It's a warning for us, even in the local church. And you must, please, please, pray for the elders of Christchurch Earlsfield, for Rob, for John, and for Ali and myself, and, and Ash who joins us is commissioned up at Clapham tonight. The measure of their success is not a bulging church or a wonderful financial kind of stability within the church. The measure of success for them is that God's word is proclaimed faithfully by them in the church of which they've been called to lead. They are to be men, men that teach the Bible faithfully, that lead their families well and are self-controlled in their lives. They think of all those other qualifications that people look towards. Well-mannered from the right kind of school, well-dressed, eloquent, wealthy, middle-class, powerful leaders, attractive. None of those matter in the slightest. We should neither look for them in leaders or be hoodwinked by them in the people that volunteer for themselves for leadership. The biblical process of choosing leaders is not a quick thing. I don't think I can ever say that when I look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It is to be measured. There is to be a prayerful watching of someone's life. The person is essentially weighed against God's word and it takes time. Often leadership decisions are are made way too quickly. If we're honest, we usually make a quick decision, don't we? And I guess if you look generally, I mean... Some of you think, well, that doesn't really apply to me too much. But I guess many of us make decisions way too quickly. Why? I think one of the main reasons is because we don't want someone to say no to us before we've made the decision. The amount of people, you wouldn't believe the amount of people I have lunch with or meet up for a drink with. And they come with a kind of fait accompli. I've made this decision. I'm going out with this person. I've kind of done this with my finances. Big, 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 big things. And it's not that any of those things are wrong or, you know, that they're not legitimate things, but the warning ought to be here, I think. If you're making massive decisions in your life without before coming to God in prayer 
over a good period of time without going also horizontally to your brothers and sisters in Christ and weighing that decision with them, then please be warned. Doing things so quickly, I guess it, we just don't see that in God's word. Take note of even the Lord Jesus himself, who what did he do before his greatest work? He spent hours upon hours upon hours in prayer in a garden and ended up making the difficult decision. Not my will, but yours be done. So Abimelech rises to power very quickly, but it's very short-lived. Secondly, and much more briefly, the fall of Abimelech. And here we get to point two. Verse 22, we're going to go through very quickly. Look at it. He gets ruled for three years, but then God's judgment begins. Now, let me say something about God's judgment. Don't isolate a particular passage like this and say, well, you know, it seems to be always God judges in an immediate way. Does something bad, boom, straight away. The Bible's repeated refrain is that Christians should expect justice. If we've been wronged, if we've been persecuted in any way, justice will come. But often in the immediate, we have to trust God that he will execute that justice ultimately on the final day. There are a number of times in the Bible where does God, of course, he does execute immediate justice. But I think they are there simply to remind us that God has the power to do so. And also that we need to wait, be patient for that final, complete execution of justice on the final day. There are a number of times in the Bible where he does, and here we have them here. Um, and also, I guess many of us know Romans very well. Think about Romans 1, uh, where God hands people over to the justice that their sins deserve. But the, if you like, the natural and the, the, the most obvious thing that we see is the more Romans 2 way, where we have to wait for the day of judgment to ultimately come. God does notice, though. He notices everything. Therefore, we have to trust him and know that his justice will come, ultimately. But here in Judges 9, Abimelech reaps what he has sown very quickly. Uh, and it begins in verse 23. Look at that. It, God Im immediately permits an evil spirit to bring division among the people and the king. Verse 24, it's a brilliant kind of writer's note. It's from God. He's allowing that to happen. Verse 26, there comes another uh, part of that justice, is a faction. The leader of it is a man named Gaal. He's a very clever man, a bit of a party animal. It seems that Abimelech has met his match. And don't kind of pitch them beside each other. They're pretty horrible, both of them. And God brings them both down by fighting each other. And God, if you look throughout history, God has done this throughout the Bible and throughout history as he brings down evil regime with evil regime. Gal gets the people of Shechem to support him, and so Abimelech fights his own people in his own hometown. Verse 34 to 40, we get the battle of Shechem, if you like. Gal against Abimelech. Gal is forced out of Shechem in verse 31, 41. Sorry, is that the end? And we kind of go, kind of wish it was. Didn't want to read the last few verses, but no, it keeps going. Abimelech then goes into the fields and kills everyone there. He takes the city and kills all the people there. He scatters salt over the city. Debate what that is. Probably just a sign of death. 
The few that were left in the Tower of Shechem retreat to the stronghold of the temple, but Abimelech and his men burn it to the ground, killing them all. Have you noticed what's happening here? It's literally what Jotham predicted in verse 20, isn't it? That fire would come out of Abimelech. The people that had chosen are essentially reaping what they sown, haven't they? They're being punished, they turned their backs on God and they chosen a leader in their means, in their way, without any reference to God. And they find themselves at this point facing a terrible consequence for turning their back on God. But how is Abimelech going to be punished? That was part of Jotham's kind of like little fable, wasn't it, in verse 20? Well, we see in verse 50. It's an extraordinary end, isn't it? Abimelech goes about 20 miles northeast to this town, uh, to the city called Thebes, and there he, they probably resisted his rule too. And he, besieged, he besieges that city, and the people remained. They fled to this strong tower in verse 51. Now, I've got a picture here, uh, just so you're going to get an idea of what's going on. Abimelech was descended on fire, but this woman, in verse 53, she's fled her kitchen. If you think about it, ladies or men, whatever your favourite item of the kitchen may be, that if you were to flee and could only carry one thing, what would you take? For my wife, it would be her Kenwood mixer, hence it's up there. <laughs> Clearly for this woman in this tower in Thebes, she said, right, I'm going to take my upper millstone. That's the most important thing to me. Can you imagine the conversation as they're running up the stairs of the tower, darling? I brought this. It's really important. You're slowing me down, but I'm going to carry it anyway. And there she does. She executes God's justice by chucking a millstone and cracking his skull. He can't bear the thought of having a woman kill him. It's very dishonouring, so he pleads for his armour bearer to finish him off, and he obliges. Turn to verse 56 to finish. If you like, the writer is summing everything up. Many might think, where is God in all this? But the writer is very clear, isn't he? Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abinamelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. The point is, God executes his justice. But if judgment is coming to the sinner, and that's what we see in this chapter very clearly, should we all look up right now to the balcony and fear a millstone? We all deserve it. None of us are perfect, are we? We may not be Abimelech, so you might not look at this and say, hey, I'm not that bad. Maybe you're not. But you have all turned your back on God at times. We are all sinners and fallen short, as we know. The wonderful joy of the Christian faith, though, is this. That unlike any other world religion, we don't live in fear of millstones. We don't fear God's justice in that way, do we? Because, if you like, God has, in his immense love for you, dropped the millstone that you and I deserve. And he's thrown it onto his son. And he's crushed his son for you let me summarise if I can this uh, chapter very quickly in three short statements we see the son escapes that is Jotham escapes by the providence of God we see the truth that he speaks in that fable is fulfilled by the power of God and we see that justice is done with a rock guided by the hand of God 
I've nicked those three statements because I think they very helpfully sum up what this chapter is about. But the big point is, it's all about God. Judges 9 is the story of Abimelech who enjoyed this brief rise before a very long fall. But the wonderful hope of the Christian faith is, is all about Jesus and the story of a brief descent to this world with a very, very long rise. Therefore, he is the one we should follow and his are the hands that we should trust with our life and with our death. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have given us a saviour, a leader in Jesus Christ. Please help us to respond to him appropriately, to kneel before him and serve him alone. Lord, we do see here just huge warnings of what happens if we substitute Jesus with anyone else. Essentially, we'll experience a fire. I guess that fire that even Jesus spoke of, that eternal fire. So please, Heavenly Father, help us to honour Jesus, that one who briefly descended, who was crushed by our millstones of sin on the cross, but who rose, who reigns eternally, now waiting for all who would put their lives and their deaths into his hands. Amen.